everyone, and welcome to this episode of Causes or Cures, a health podcast hosted by me, Dr. Eeks. Thanks so much for being here and joining in. I hope you guys are doing okay. So, continuing our exploration of the causes and cures for the obesity epidemic. See what I did there? When your podcast name fits perfectly with the topic. <clears throat> Anyhow, today I will be chatting with Dr. Jerry Heindel, who is director of the Healthy Environment and Endocrine Disruptor Strategies, otherwise known as HEEDS, H-E-E-D-S. He has his doctorate degree in biochemistry, and he and a team of researchers recently published a review on the link between chemical exposures and obesity. And I will share, uh, I will link to that review in the podcast description, so if you guys want to check it out, you can. In the podcast, he's going to talk about these chemical exposures. What are they? Where do they exist? You'll find out that a lot are in everyday products that we all use, which is concerning, right? Because we use these products every day and our obesity rates are only going up, which is a concern, a health concern. He's going to talk about what the word obesogen means. Obesogens, you may have heard that word. Um, He's going to tell us exactly what an obesogen is, what, you know, he's going to describe it in detail. He's going to talk about the potential mechanisms of action for how these chemicals fuel obesity. He's going to talk about when the exposure occurs in a person's life and if that matters, meaning if you're exposed when you're a kid versus if you're an adult, doesn't matter. Sometimes it does with exposures. He's going to talk about the current evidence base and things that we can do on both the individual level and the population level, meaning policies, politics, things that we can implement at the population level to reduce our exposure. Okay, so give me a second here, guys, and we will connect to Dr. Heindel. Um, All right, so we have... Dr. Jerry Hundell, thank you so much for joining in on causes or cures. Um, I wanted to focus on obesity this year. Obviously, it's an, an issue here in the States and uh, Europe and other places. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do, and how you became interested in the causes of, of obesity, particularly chemicals that might contribute to it? Sure, I can do that. And I'm really pleased to be part of this uh, podcast. So I don't need to go back too far, but I worked for 25 years at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. And that's a part of NIH that examines uh, environmental chemicals impact on diseases. And I was in the extramural part, that's the part that gives out grants to academic institutions mostly. And my job was to develop a portfolio of grants addressing the issue of endocrine disrupting chemicals and disease. So for most of that time, I was focused on things like endocrine disrupting chemicals and cancer or reproductive health or immune disorders, things like that. But around the year 2000, people started publishing that there were chemicals that could cause weight gain. And I became very interested 
in that. And in 2007, an article came out from Bruce Blumberg's lab that actually caused, called these chemicals obesogens for the first time. And that's when the field really started taking off. So it's fairly new field uh, as that goes in environmental uh, sciences. I got in right sort of on the ground floor and have been interested in it ever since. Interesting. And now, it, for the last four years, I've actually been retired. Um, so one of the things I did was I started a, a website to help the endocrine disruptor community, and it's called heeds.org, H-E-E-D-S.org. It's Healthy Environment and Endocrine Disruptor Strategies. And as part of that, because of my interest in, in obesity and trying to help the field, uh -huh. uh, I got a bunch of colleagues together and said, would you help me write the comprehensive review of these obesogens and health? And we did that. It took 15 months and 20 different versions of it, but finally it <laughs> came out a few weeks ago. Right, right, and uh, there was three reviews, right? Yes. Yeah, I've I've been through uh, two of them uh, in in detail. I, I have to I have another one, the other one I plan on going through. Um, really though, lots of detail and really well done. Um, and I think it just it gives such a great overview of everything that's known and not known. Um, so. For those who don't know, some people on this podcast may not know, can you describe in simple terms or define what an obesogen is? So simply, an obesogen is an exogenous chemical that can cause weight gain in an animal or human. But let me perhaps back up a little bit. There's hundreds of thousands of chemicals in the environment today. Most of them aren't toxic, but some of them are toxic because they just kill you like poisons. But some of them are toxic because they interfere with the function of the normal hormonal system, the endocrine system. And those chemicals are called endocrine disruptors. So these are chemicals that were made for a specific purpose. They're made to be a solvent or part of a household product, but they have a side effect. And the side effect is that they interfere with some hormone action. Okay. And they can cause all kinds of different diseases. Mm -hmm. So a subset of the endocrine disruptors then are obesogens. Mm. which are the chemicals that cause weight gain. So okay. that's how I'd put it in perspective. No, no, that, that was good. Um, easy to understand. Now, in one of your reviews, you listed the most relevant obesogens. Can you talk about some of those and why you consider them the most relevant? The most relevant obesogens, the way we set this up, are the ones that have the strongest data. They have data from culture systems. They have data from animal models and humans. And some of these chemicals, the first one 
is like smoking during pregnancy. That's the strongest data. I always call that really proof of principle for an environmental chemical because the chemical that really appears to be causing it in smoking is nicotine. So smoking during pregnancy will lead to increased weight in the babies that are born. And it shows up really uh, at about the age they go to school at five or six. Then there are other chemicals that have strong data. The pesticide DDT, which is no longer uh, being used, and bisphenol A, the chemical many people know about found in plastics. There's a series of chemicals called phthalates. They're in all kinds of plastics and they make plastics softer. And they're also in personal care products. And then air pollution, both because of the organic chemicals that are in the air pollution and the particulate matter, both of those uh, can cause uh, weight gain. And finally, the one that is called tributyl tin, which is a fungicide. Hmm. And I, I have a note here uh, on prescribed medicines. I think that was on the list. Correct me if I'm wrong of, of the most relevant. And I just yeah, thought, we, we did, okay. We put that in the, in the review because this is an area that clinicians have known about forever. Right. You know, you always see drugs advertised on TV and they always have this long list of side effects. Well, there are some of these drugs that have side effects that they cause weight gain. Some of them are antidepressants, some blood pressure medicines. Uh, some of those are called beta blockers and even some medicines that help with diabetes. The one that everybody knows is called Avandia. So that's really proof of principle. These are chemicals designed as drugs to do some specific purpose, uh, but they also have this side effect of causing weight gain. So that's really proof of principle that obviously there can be chemicals that will cause weight gain. Right, right, and make it harder to lose the weight. Um, so in your review, you write that establishing a causal link between a chemical exposure and obesity requires the identification of its mechanism of action. And I know you divided the mechanisms of actions into long-term, intermediate, and organ-dependent. As simple as you can, can you describe these categories and some of the specific mechanisms of action that fall under them? So let, let me just do it this way. It's always helpful to know the site where an obesogen acts and its mechanism of action helps people feel better that, oh yeah, now I understand what it's doing and where it's doing it. So I feel more comfortable accepting that as, right. as an obesogen's. Right. So some of them work by stimulating pre-adipocytes to become fat cells. That would be the most direct effect. It actually makes more fat cells. But most of them will, will affect other aspects. A lot of the obesogens, 
as I go through this and I mention some names, you see that some of the chemicals that are obesogens affect multiple pathways. And the reason for that is because they affect some specific hormone and that hormone is affecting those different categories. Uh Some other pathways that are affected are to control food intake. So there are two sections in the brain that control your eating behavior. And the one of them contains neurons that tell you that you're hungry. And they also have neurons that tell you, okay, that's enough, now stop eating. And those can be altered by some of these obesogens. BPA is one example. It gives you more of the neurons that tell you to keep eating and less of the neurons that tell you to stop eating. There are also ones that affect the GI tract and and hormones in in the gastrointestinal tract and affect the microbiome and also the the liver and the the pancreas. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the microbiome because it's uh, kind of like a new field too that everyone's exploring how that links to uh, diseases, essentially. I also wanted to ask you about circadian rhythms. What, what is the link there? So that's one of the areas where there's very actually minimal data uh, that chemicals can alter the 24 hour cycles. You know, hormones, most hormones are released in 24 hour cycles. They're up and down at a certain time throughout the day called circadian rhythms or your biological clock. And there's a biological clock in the brain and there are also these clocks in many tissues. There are some chemicals that alter these rhythms and they disrupt these rhythms but how that actually leads to weight gain is, is really not clear yet. Okay, yeah, and I mean, I know there's some studies showing that if you don't sleep well, or like lack of sleep can um, cause weight gain too. I, mean, I, I was curious, I was, you know, when I saw circadian rhythms, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's related somehow. Well, uh, that, that could be. Yeah. The one study that kind of stands out is actually again with BPA, where they gave this study and to, uh, to mice, they gave the chemical BPA to mice. And these mice then had alter activity cycles. You know, mice are active at night and they sleep during the day normally. But when you gave this BPA, it altered the cycle of when they were awake and when they were sleeping. And also it altered when they were awake, they were lazier. They tended to not run around as much as uh, they would have done normally. And actually, they call these mice couch potato mice, which kind of matches the human situation (laughs) a little Um, bit. The poor poor mice, yeah. Um, So in public health, they talk about critical periods or when an exposure might be more harmful than at other points in a person's life. Is there a time in someone's life when an exposure to an obesogen might be more harmful? The answer is absolutely yes. And this is really critical to the whole obesogen hypothesis. 
So obesogens can act anytime throughout your life and interfere with the hormones that are controlling your metabolism. But it's during development where they're most sensitive. And that's because that's the time when fat cells are developing and the liver and the brain are all developing and all these systems that are interacting and controlling weight gain are all developing and they're controlled by hormones and growth factors. So when you have these obesogens present during that time when the tissues are developing, that's the most sensitive time because they can turn genes on and off that shouldn't be there. So for example, you might have not just more fat cells than you normally should, but they might be abnormal fat cells. And the same thing with the other parts of the brain, like I just mentioned, they could alter the number of neurons in the brain that control your, your eating and uh, tell you to stop eating, that kind of thing. And those are all mainly developed in utero, and then they're going to be permanent for the rest of your life. And what they do is really sensitize you or increase your susceptibility then to gain weight later in life. Hmm. Yeah, that is that is a critical piece to know then, I think, um, for people to know, which, and so this kind of kind of connects to my next question. As I was reading about the different obesogens that you've listed in your review, I was thinking, man, these are widespread. They're everywhere. Uh, it's got to make it difficult to do a controlled experiment. Um, it seems like they're in all different things that we use or are exposed to every day. That said, how would you describe the evidence base for obesogens? So the one thing you can't do is give these kind of chemicals to humans in some kind of a controlled experiment like they do with drugs when they do drug trials. So that's not allowed. So the, the strongest data that we can get is to give these chemicals to cells in culture and then they are causally stimulate fat cells. So you give the chemical, they stimulate fat cells. So that's a causal relationship. You know they're doing it. The same thing you can do to pregnant mice or rats. Give the chemical, then you look at the offspring and you see the offspring has gained weight. You can look at the mechanism of that. So that's, again, a causal relationship that you can prove. But in humans we can't do those kind of experiments. So what we have to do is just measure a chemical during pregnancy in a group of women, and then link the ones that have the highest level of that chemical to increase weight gain in the offspring, in the babies and the children later in life. So that's an association between the exposure and the end result of increased weight gain. So that's the strongest data that we can get. But you're also right that obesogens are everywhere and there's no way you can easily avoid all these ex 
exposures. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's the tricky thing about trying to figure out all the health effects from an exposure that's widespread. <laughs> um, but I think it's important for people to understand that, you, you know, you can't do a randomized controlled trial on humans. Um, so, but you, there are these other ways to collect and evaluate evidence. Um, you write that exposure to obesogenic chemicals is an under-recognized and understudied factor in the obesity pandemic. In your opinion, why do you think that is? So the focus of the clinical community, clinicians and uh, clinical obesity researchers, is really that obesity is due to overeating. And thus, their focus is waiting till you're obese and then to put you on drugs or diets or surgery. Now, if those interventions were really working well, we should see a decline in the rates of obesity. But there continues to be an increase in obesity across the globe, especially in infants and children. Therefore, something is, is missing here. And I think what's missing is a focus on what makes people overeat. And we believe that the obesogen paradigm offers a solution. We can show in many cases that when you give these obesogenic chemicals, it stimulates these animals to overeat. And so that provides a, a direct link between chemicals and overeating and the weight gain. And it also offers another solution, a focus on prevention. It's always better to prevent a disease, but there, the, the whole field doesn't pay much attention to that. They wait till you're obese and then they want to sell you a, a, a drug. Yeah. Now, the other part is this obesogen field is only about 15 years old, and it's really quite a small number of researchers working in it. And these researchers tend to talk to themselves. <laughs> and it's the same way for the, the clinicians and the clinical obesity people who are trying to understand obesity. They're talking to their themselves mm -hmm. and they're not paying attention to the literature on chemicals that cause weight gain. So we're trying to do something <laughs> about that to kind of break down these silos between the different scientific disciplines. And, and help to get the word out. And that's one of the reasons we wrote the, uh, this series of review articles. Yeah, and it, um, I, it seems to be getting some uh, press and uh, well, people are reading about it in the news at least, so that's good. It's, it's at least putting the topic on some people's radar that might be able to you know, disseminate it to more people, so to speak. Yeah, you know, the, the way we look at it is the the clinical researchers and clinicians are really the key here. Yeah. If we can get them to look at this data and understand this data and say, oh my, this is uh, something that we need to be paying attention to. And then in addition to the obesogen workers, we have all these thousands of clinicians and clinical researchers pushing to do something about it then maybe we could get policymakers and regulators 
to pay attention and try to regulate these chemicals and then get them uh, away from us so we don't uh, have these kind of exposures. As we are now just with the small group of obesogen researchers, you know, policymakers aren't paying us much attention yet. All right, well, can I guess continue to, to sound the horns, I guess. Um, I want to, you know, as a follow-up question to that, and I did read where some people disregard obesogens and uh, for whatever reason, but what do you say to a doctor right now who might be out there thinking, oh, these chemicals are, aren't relevant. We, we shouldn't focus on them. All, all we have to do is cut calories, get someone to exercise, eat right. That's all that matters. How, how would you respond to someone who's out there thinking that right now? Sure. Well, there's several ways to respond to that. First, to ask them, well, how well is that working? <laughs> you know, ask anybody who's been trying yeah. to diet and lose weight. And then if you do lose it, how do you keep it off? It's not working too well. So that's one thing. Uh, second, prevention is always better. So wouldn't it be better to prevent obesity in the first place? instead of having to pay all this money and for drugs after you're, you're obese. Now, the other thing is these obesogen exposures in utero, when, uh, when you were in utero uh, and as a baby and then continue across the lifespan, they're, they're making you fatter. They're increasing your susceptibility to gain weight. They're making it easier to gain weight and harder to lose weight and hard to keep it off. So that matches the, the human situation. In many of these cases, where you have exposure to obesogens in animal models, they will increase food intake. And that's a mechanism for causing the weight gain. But in actual fact, there are several of these that will put weight gain on these animals with, without increasing food intake. They're altering other aspects of your metabolism, your metabolic rate. You know, you talk about people who have slow metabolism uh, and these chemicals could be doing something like that. So they can, obesogens could be doing all of these things. And finally, we're on a pretty much high fat, high sugar diets. And these obesogenic chemicals will have a bigger effect when they have high fat and high sugar diets. They can put on weight on a normal diet, but when you have this kind of Western diets that we all know about, there is going to be a synergistic interaction. And the two of them then will increase your weight gain. So there are a lot of things going on. It's not just simple. Uh, cutting back on your on your calories. That's interesting. The synergy part. Um, when you think when you put it that way, um, and 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 it's also. In, I mean, well, I also just a general comment on prevention. We we are notoriously bad at prevention. Um, I I don't know why, but it just. I wish there was more of a focus on prevention in general in in the field of public health and in our healthcare system. Um, but I, I don't know if that'll ever happen. No, you're, you're exactly right. It's not just with obesogens, it's everywhere. 
I know. Look at the cancer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. They, 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 when you get cancer, then they want to give you a drug to reduce it. But there's then the, the uh, people who are working on cancer are almost always focused on developing a drug to block it once you have it. Right, right. Um, the, the drug and the drug would be, you know, probably most profitable. And that's something, you know, and I, uh, when you, you see all these different like wellness communities popping up, um, that's, that is one of their critiques and they might not necessarily have a firm grip, grasp on, you know, the scientific method and how you produce evidence, but there is that awareness. Well, they don't care about prevention at all. Or, I mean, people obviously do care, but it's just not, it doesn't seem like it's a primary focus right now. That's um, right. Yeah. Um, now, as I read through the list of obesogens, as I mentioned before, they seem like they're everywhere. They're in a lot of things that we might all be exposed to on a daily basis. In your opinion, what are the best ways for someone, an individual, to reduce his or her level of exposure? Um, and you know, does one obesogen matter over an, is it more important to reduce your exposure to one versus another? Is there something somebody can do to counter the effects? Mm -hmm. So let's see what I can do with that. So <laughs> my, my feeling here is start by changing the, your diet. This Western diet is obesogenic itself. This Western diet that's high in fat, high in sugar, high in salt, low in fiber, high in processed and canned foods, and inadequate fresh fruits and vegetables, just by itself, that's obesogenic. It's going to put weight on, on you because of that type of diet. But now, in addition to that, when you have that kind of a diet, it contains a lot of obesogens. It, the obesogens are in the, the packaging, in the uh, can lining. You get BPA and phthalates and these perfluorinated uh, chemicals that uh, once they get into your body, they live practically forever. And then you have fructose and high fructose corn syrup. You have these non-nutritive sweeteners in diet sodas and things. And then in the, all the canned foods, you have food preservatives, additives, emulsifiers, monosodium glutamate. All those things are pesticides, are um, obesogens. And then you have pesticides on all the fruits and vegetables. So you're, you get a double whammy when you're having this, this high fat diet. So if you start from there, use nothing that's canned, use fresh fruits and vegetables, try to use no plastics in your microwave, stop using air fresheners, careful which personal care products and household products you use. One of the ways to do that is to look at a website called ewg.org or one called becausehealth.org where they tell you all of the different toxic chemicals, obesogens and other endocrine disrupting chemicals that are in your personal care products, household products, 
uh, things like that. So you can buy things that don't have toxic chemicals in it. And certainly don't be using Roundup all over your house and, and your yard. So, you know, yeah. knowing you, you have obesogens in your body, mm -hmm. you know, you probably got some of them uh, in, in utero and when you were a, a baby, and you know now that that's going to make it harder to control your weight. So you have to focus more on diet and exercise and, and being uh, more careful to reduce exposures to, so you can reduce the effects that these obesogens are having on you. But you know, individuals can only do so much. It's, it's really difficult. But I think, you know, if you were going to be, uh, get, get pregnant, you, uh, the, you and your husband and the wife could talk to your clinicians and, you, and, and look at these websites and develop plans because it is likely that you can significantly reduce these chemicals uh, in, your, in your body and keep them lower so that you can protect the next generation as best you can. But as I mentioned before, this is a public health problem and individuals can't do that much. So we wrote these articles to hope that the information would get out and hopefully the uh, regulators and policy makers will start to pay attention and, and see this is really a, a, an issue that they should do something about and, and start getting rid of some of these toxic chemicals in, in, our, in our food and food packaging and everywhere else that you can find them. Right, and that would be, which was my next question, by the way, like you said, this uh, public health, it addresses issues on the, on the population level and that's you know, where the regulation comes in or the policies come in. Um, what, what would be some of the policies? I know you just mentioned a few um, specifically that you would like to see or that you think might make the most difference. And I know this is, you yeah. know, it's, yeah. You it's know, a being, a, being a scientist, we, <laughs> we focus on the data yeah. and I'm not a policy maker or a regulator. Right. So I can't tell them exactly what to do, but we hope that they would pay attention. And when they see toxic chemicals like these in the environment, that they would do something to try to reduce uh, the levels in the environment uh, to protect uh, human health. There's one other part that I didn't get to mention that's uh, maybe I can add here. Yeah, of course. All the experiments that I was talking about when I talk about the, the animal studies, uh, the typical thing is to look at giving a chemical to the pregnant animal, and then you follow the offspring, and you look at what happens to the offspring when they got that obesogenic chemical while they were in utero. And that's where we see the increased weight gain and look at the mechanisms. But it turns out that some of these chemicals, some of the obesogens actually can cross generations. So there are experiments where you do what I just said and you take the offspring and you can examine the weight gain and then you can um, mate them 
for another generation and another generation and another generation. And when you get three or four generations down, they have never seen a chemical anywhere ever. And still the effect of these chemicals to affect their weight gain is still evident. So this is really important and very scary. So it says the exposure your great grandmother had affected your grandmother, which is affecting your mother, which has affected you all, all this generations down. Now those are animal studies, but we're starting to get now some human data and the very first one that came out in back in the 1950s when DDT was very popular, a lot of people had their DDT measured in the blood. And those people are now great grandmothers or their, their grandmothers. I think, well, <laughs> I think the great grandmothers uh, and, and then they had their great, their granddaughters are now 26 years old in that range. And those granddaughters have a, an increased weight compared to the ones that were the grand, great grandmothers that had low exposure to DDT. And it's a huge effect for a human study. So we're starting to see this transgenerational effect. And what that means is if we don't do something over the next generations, obesity will continue to get worse and worse as we have more generations exposed and passing those effects on to the next generations. So I don't wow. want to end scaring everybody, yeah. but you know, eventually it gets time for something to happen here. Yeah. Well, that is a scary thought to think. I mean, sometimes, sometimes fear is a good thing in a way because it can act as a motivator. Uh, that's, that is a frightening thought to think about that. If we don't do something, if we don't intervene, that's a potential scenario that could play out. Or if we see it playing out now, maybe. Hmm. Um, the thing too, I found interesting about this, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's also a talk, how we talk about people who, with obesity and it's stigmatizing, it, it can be stigmatizing for them. And, you know, uh, they have a tough time in society too. And um, this, or people, there's this blame game, you know, and I think like this research kind of shows, well, there are some things here that might be outside of somebody's control that, you know, the policymakers can, can help there. That's exactly right. We, yeah. You can't bl blame uh, people for, for chemicals that have affected them before they were even born. Right. And that sets them up. But right. knowing that uh, they can pay more attention and uh, it may be uh, kind of thwart the action of those chemicals. And not only that, you know, now that we know that this uh, in utero and early childhood time frame is very sensitive, yeah. we should be able to focus on, on that time period to reduce the exposures yeah. and thereby then prevent the obesity from from occurring later later in life. Yeah. So there's there's hope there. We know 
we know the chemicals, we know where they come from, we know what they do, uh, and we could have a precautionary principle basically to say, let's do everything we can to reduce our exposure to these chemicals and thereby improve our life the best we can ourselves, while we uh, advocate for our government agencies to do their part to help. I mean, it sounds like a cost-effective solution that, you know, at least you could try it. Like, there's no, I don't think there's any harm in, in getting that out there to people, um, you know, at least as a suggestion uh, based on our rates right yeah. now. So yeah. it can't hurt. It can't hurt, right? Yeah. It's right. It really can't hurt. Um, there's, one, there's one human experiment that oh. kind of uh, fits here. They, they put people on four different diets and on the four diets, they all lost about the same weight. And after a few months, they all started gaining weight back. But they measured at the beginning some chemicals in the people who were going on the diets. And there was one kind of chemical in particular, these perfluorinated chemicals, and the people who had the highest levels of those in their body, they gained the most weight back. And it's because these chemicals appeared to slower their metabolic rate. So that's a, a perfect um, situation to the human situation normally, um, where you hard to lose weight, you gain it you gain it back and maybe some of these chemicals would be affecting both aspects there. Wow, wow, that's really interesting. Um, makes me wanna just like move to a farm and grow my own food and, <laughs> and control the whole process, but uh, that, that isn't possible for everybody. Um, Dr. Heindel, thank you so much. This was really interesting. And I think um, you really presented it in a way that people are gonna be able to understand, which I appreciate. And I wanted to ask, I know you have this not-for-profit um, HEADS, right? That's the acronym? Yes. And, and if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing um, or even how to get involved, how would you advise them? I'm not sure that all kinds of things can be done at, at the community level, at the church oh, level, or you're talking scientists. Oh no, I meant like level. if they wanted to get in touch or like, you know, is it, what is your exact website? Because I didn't write it down. Okay. I just have the acronym. <laughs> yeah. So it's www.heeds.org. Okay. And everything related to these endocrine disrupting chemicals and causing weight gain and causing all kinds of different uh, diseases, uh, you can find information on, on that website. But there are the two other websites that I mentioned, ewg.org, or the other one is called becausehealthoneword.org. You can find a lot more information there about if you want to have makeup or hair products or household products that work well, but don't have any of these toxic chemicals in them, you can find that information there. And they also have lists of like 
the best fruits and vegetables to buy, the ones that have the least pesticides uh, in, attached to them. So that can be very help, helpful. No, absolutely. That, and that, that was becausehealth.org? Yeah. Okay, okay. I, I just wrote them down. I'm gonna go check them out myself. Um, thank you so much for your time today. And I, I hope that uh, your work here gets uh, picked up or catches the attention of all the right people and hopefully can make some changes for the better. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and what you're doing here it will certainly help us do what we want to do in getting the word out. I hope so. That's what the podcast is for. So <laughs> thanks so much and enjoy the rest of your day there. I really learned a lot and appreciate this. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye. All right, team, thanks so much for joining in for this episode of Causes or Cures. I hope you guys got something out of it. Um, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, you can email me, erin at bloomingwellness.com, bloomingwellness.com. Um, I hope you stick around, subscribe, share the episode. Uh, I learned a lot. I think this is a really important and timely topic, so we should get get it out there to the world any way we can. Uh, at least put it on people's radar, you know? Like, hey, there could be something here. Let's pay attention to this. Um, and that's it. I hope you guys have a good rest of the day wherever you are and hope to see you here on the next episode of Causes or Cures. Till then.